This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God Come what may. If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. For more than a century, skeptical intellectuals have been saying that science and a belief in God are at war. In fact, that those two things actually cannot be reconciled. Now, we know as Christians that this isn't true. But what's interesting is to take note of the scientific discoveries that are showing the designing intelligence behind life and the universe. And as my next guest discovered, the data support not just the existence of a vague intelligent designer, but actually the existence of a personal God. It's so fascinating. We're going to talk about it today with Dr. Stephen Meyer, philosopher of science and director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. He's author of the best-selling book, Signature in the Cell and Darwin's Doubt, and is now out with another great book called Return of the God Hypothesis. So good to have you with us, Dr. Meyer. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and it's awfully nice to talk with you again, Janet. Well, it's nice to talk with you again. This materialist interpretation of the origin of life is all around us. Obviously, it's been around for a long time. You say that many scientists, though, are now questioning scientific materialism and embracing this God hypothesis. Exactly what is that, and how is it returned? How has it returned? Well, the the title of the book does invite a bit of a story uh, because the science in its modern form with the systematic investigation of nature uh, arose in a distinctively Judeo-Christian milieu in Western Europe during the time of uh, roughly 1500 to 1750, maybe even stretching back a bit into the late um, Catholic Middle Ages. And um, you had figures like Newton and Galileo and Boyle and Kepler, all of whom were devoutly religious men and who were studying nature with a confidence that they could understand nature precisely because they believed it had been designed by a rational intellect, namely God. They had a watchword. They, they talked about nature being intelligible. It could be understood by the rational human intellect because, it had re- because there was reason built into nature, and the same rational intellect who had made our minds had made nature with order and purpose and design and pattern that we could perceive. Right. Uh, we lost that perspective in the late 19th century with figures like Darwin, Huxley, Marx, and Freud. Um, and the story of the book is the story of the return of that perspective as the result of, of three great scientific discoveries. Right. Now, the first one has to do with evidence from cosmology about the beginning of the material universe. What is that evidence? Well, this uh, began, the story of the discovery of the beginning of the universe uh, began, if you will, in uh, the 19-teens and 20s, about 100 years ago, as astronomers were able to detect light coming from distant objects in the night sky, which they first thought were just uh, clouds of gas around stars within our Milky Way, but then later realized were actually galaxies in their own right. And this light coming from these distant galaxies, they discovered, was being stretched out the wavelengths of the light were longer than they should have been if the objects were stationary. This is a phenomenon known as red shift. Red light has a longer wavelength in the, uh, in the visible light spectrum than, say, violet. And so this, this uh, stretching out of the light indicated that the galaxies were moving away from us. 
And except for those that were very close at hand, all of the galaxies in the night sky were, were indicating this kind of expansion of the universe itself. And if the universe is expanding outward in the forward direction of time, then as you wind the clock backwards in your mind's eye, you get to the place where the galaxies would have congealed into one dense point, marking the beginning of the expansion and arguably the beginning of the universe itself. Hmm. And then later discoveries, um, for first developments in theoretical physics, Einstein's general theory of relativity, a theory of gravity that implied that massive bodies are actually curving space, implied, again, that if you go back far enough where the matter becomes densely concentrated, space will become so tightly curved that it will eventually go to a zero point where it will be infinitely tightly curved, corresponding to zero spatial volume, marking the beginning of space and time and the universe. And this was later, uh, this uh, uh, theorem called the Singularity Theorem was developed in the 1960s by Stephen Hawking, Roger Penrose, and George Ellis. And it was one, another indication of a beginning. And uh, so it's, it's quite a fascinating story, and I tell it in the book. Well, it is interesting, because if that indicates that there is a beginning to the universe, then why don't we see more scientists and more atheists acquiescing to that? Well, I think actually there's been quite a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance in the fields of astronomy and uh, astrophysics and cosmology since these discoveries started to come online. Hmm. There was a famous book in the 1980s by Robert Jastrow called God and the Astronomers. Jastrow identified himself as, as an agnostic, but uh, acknowledged the clear theistic implications of the discovery of a beginning. I attended a conference in Dallas, where you are, in 1985, when I was a very young scientist, and one of the speakers there was a man named Alan Sandage, and the conference was a dis- it featured a discussion of the origin of the universe and the origin of life with both materialists, atheists on one side of the panels, and theists on the other. Sandage uh, shocked everyone by climbing to the podium and taking a seat with the theists, and then uh, proceeded to explain how he had rejected his formerly held agnosticism or atheism, materialism, and embraced um, belief in God, not in spite of, but because of developments in his own field. Hmm. Sandage was one of the great um, observational astronomers of the 20th century. He had been Edwin Hubble's graduate student and went on to verify this expansion of the universe in the different quadrants of the night sky. So there has been, I think, and this is part of the story I tell in the book, there's been an, a, a, a significant shift towards a more theistic perspective among many scientists, though that's not uh, commonly recognized if we only listen to folks like uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy or Neil Tyson DeGrasse on their very popular um, you know, science programs. Right. I try to listen to them as infrequently as possible for those reasons. <laughs> but, you know, when you mention cognitive dissonance, I think that's very interesting because what that seems to indicate is that it's very difficult to let go of your worldview when evidence is contradicting your worldview. Do you basically feel that way, that that's really what's going on with a lot of these people? Oh, oh that's absolutely what's going on. And we see that uh, very explicitly. We, well, it was very explicit in the cosmology debate. Fred Hoyle, who initially rejected the Big Bang theory, actually labeled this idea of a cosmic beginning as the Big Bang in order, as a kind of pejorative term. He was trying to ridicule it. <laughs> and then... Um, and, and many, many astrophysicists uh, acknowledged that this was very disturbing to their worldview. Uh, one uh, physicist, Robert Dickey, said that an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of, of explaining the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. But conversely, if there was an origin of matter, space, time, and energy, then you can't invoke a materialistic cause, because before 
the beginning of matter, there was no matter that could have caused matter to come into existence. So people recognized that this seemed to point to the need for an external creator of some kind, and that was very troubling. Well, now, since the 60s, I think that was the, the last decade that you mentioned when you were explaining how all, you know, the, the evidence from the galaxies was, was discussed and was put out there. But have there been any more recent developments in cosmology that have further confirmed those realities that were confirmed over 100 years ago? Uh, there, there absolutely have been. There was some great work in observational astronomy that was performed by a team led by George Smoot uh, in the 1990s with something called the uh, Cosmic Background uh, Explorer, the COBE satellite. And they discovered little anomalies in the, the radiation left over from the Big Bang that were expected had there been a, a definite beginning. They hadn't been found to that point, but they, they were able to discover them. In my book, I also discuss attempts to explain away the beginning of the universe using an alternative approach to cosmology that uh, goes by the heady name of quantum cosmology. Hmm. It's kind of a big story. It was popularized by Stephen Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time. And I show that, um, it, uh, that, that the, the physicists who are, are developing this approach inadvertently develop a cosmological model that actually also implies the need for a creator. They, in effect, attempt to explain the origin of matter, space, time, and energy from the laws of physics, but the laws of physics are expressed as mathematical equations, and so you have this odd paradox where, where immaterial mathematics is somehow producing a material universe, and even some of the quantum physicists have recognized that that's very odd because math exists, exists in the realm of a mind, and Alexander Vilenkin, one of the architects of this quantum cosmological approaches, does that mean that, given our, the way we're trying to explain things, that a mind predated the universe? Hmm. <laughs> and so, so even the attempt to get around the idea of a beginning using a different cosmological model has brought the God hypothesis back into view. Isn't that interesting? We're going to pause for a short break. Return of the God hypothesis by Dr. Stephen Meyer is the book. We're going to come back with Dr. Meyer right after this break on Janet Meffer Today. When Julia ended a bad relationship, she found out she was pregnant. After the father told her to get an abortion, this mom was confused and didn't know what to do or who to talk to. I just knew that if I got an abortion, a part of me would be broken. Julia was referred to a preborn center where she was counseled and supported with the strength that she needed to choose life. I couldn't imagine my life without him. Because of them, he's here. We're going to get through it and it's going to be okay. Preborn centers provide hope, love, free ultrasounds, and the gospel of Jesus Christ to moms like Julia. Preborn truly is the alternative to Planned Parenthood. Will you join Preborn in helping love and support young moms in crisis? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help rescue five babies' lives. To donate, call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, 855-402-2229, or there's a Preborn banner to to click at JanetMefford.com. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Great to have you with us and great to be talking with Dr. Stephen Meyer, philosopher of science and director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. His latest book is called Return of the God Hypothesis. And it's really fascinating to talk to you, Dr. Meyer, and find out everything that's been going on in the field of science that actually points to a creator. Now, we had been talking about some of the evidence from cosmology that reveals the mind behind the universe. But let's go on to another one that you mentioned, which is evidence from physics that shows that from the beginning, the universe has been finely tuned. Talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, if we think about that expanding universe that we were just talking about, it turns out that the force that's driving that expansion is extremely precise, such that if it were a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker, life and stable galaxies and even basic chemistry would be impossible. Hmm. And uh, it's fine-tuned if one part in 10 to the 90th power is an accepted estimate. So to get that level of fine-tuning or precision by chance, that would be like going out into the universe blindfolded, looking for one marked elementary particle, because there's 10 to the 80th elementary particles in our universe, but not just one, not just looking for that particle in one universe, but in 10 billion universes our size. Oh, my. Uh, so the, the, these are mind-blowing numbers and estimates of precision in the, in the setup of basic physical parameters. And that um, force of expansion I was talking about called the cosmological constant is just one of dozens of these fine-tuning parameters, the, the strength of gravitational force, electric magnetic force, the masses of the elementary particles, the, the arrangement of matter and energy at the beginning of the universe, the initial conditions of the universe. All these things had to be exquisitely finely tuned to allow just for the possibility of life and many physicists have come to the conclusion that this fine-tuning suggests a fine-tuner. Fred Hoyle, whom I mentioned in the last segment, who was initially very skeptical of the Big Bang because of his own uh, materialistic uh, philosophy and atheism, later rejected his own world, earlier worldview and came to embrace a kind of proto-quasi-theism and said that the fine-tuning evidence, the evidence we have suggested a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry to make life possible. So it's another example of that shift in thinking among some very prominent scientists. Well, now that's interesting because another thing that you address in the book has to do with the multiverse hypothesis. And wasn't that another way of trying to explain the fine-tuning angle on the universe? That is the most current way that physicists are trying to explain the fine-tuning without a fine-tuner. And the idea there is that even though these parameters are incredibly improbably set, there were enough universes out there that eventually a universe like ours that was life-conducive would have had to have arisen. 
The problem with this hypothesis, however, is that if these other universes out there have no contact with ours, then they don't affect the probabilities in our universe. They don't affect events in our universe, including the probabilities of whatever it is that set the fine-tuning. So to get around that problem, multiverse advocates have had to propose universe-generating mechanisms that can present all the universes as the consequence of a single common cause, like each universe is kind of... uh, one of the outcomes of a sort of a lottery, and ours just happens to be the, the lucky winner in a giant cosmic lottery. <laughs> wow. the, the difficulty arises, however, when you look at these gener- universe-generating mechanisms that have been proposed, even in theory, they require prior unexplained fine-tuning. And so the fine-tuning problem hasn't really been explained. It's just been pushed back one generation and out of view. But the only explanation we have for systems in our experience that are finely tuned, where we mean something like, an ensemble of improbable conditions that jointly produce a functional outcome, the systems like that that are finely tuned, whether we're talking about Swiss watches or digital code or a a French recipe, they always come from a fine tuner, from a chef or an engineer or or a software designer. In other words, fine tuning is an indicator of intelligence in our experience. And since the multiverse hasn't explained away fine tuning, it, 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 it leaves the only explanation that we know of uh, and that is intelligent design. Yes, makes sense to me. Now, what about the DNA evidence? Because some of the recent discoveries about DNA also, you say, point to a mastermind of the universe. How so? What's going on in that field? Well, uh, this is what my first two books were about, uh, Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell. And I reprise some of the, the basic arguments in this book to give the full picture of the, the three big discoveries as an ensemble. But in 1953, we all learned in uh, biology class that Watson and Crick discovered the, the structure of the DNA molecule. But in 1957 and 58, Crick made an arguably even more important discovery. It was called initially the sequence hypothesis. And he proposed that the chemical subunits along the interior of that twisting double helix molecule, the subunits are called bases, he proposed that they're functioning like alphabetic characters in a written text or digital characters, like the zeros and ones we use in software. And that hypothesis was eventually confirmed. The information that's stored in the DNA molecule is actually being used to construct the proteins and molecular machines that keep cells alive. Uh, Bill Gates, our local hero here in the Seattle area, has said that DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. We know from experience that software comes from programmers. We know more generally that information uh, in whatever form we find it, especially if we find it in a a digital or alphabetic form, always results from a prior intelligence, whether we're talking about a paragraph in a book or a hieroglyphic inscription or even information embedded in a radio signal. If we trace information back to its ultimate source, we always come to a mind, not not strict uh, materialistic processes. So the discovery of information in the molecules at the foundation of life in every living cell, um, I argue, uh, point to the reality of a designing intelligence at work in the origin and history of life. That is amazing. Yeah, and you have covered that, uh, as you mentioned before, in your two other books. But it's so fascinating because you draw a distinction, don't you, as to a deistic explanation for the mind versus a theistic. Why is there a difference that the theistic view explains these things better than the deistic view? Well, in all of these three things we've been talking about, scientific materialism really fails as an explanation because it denies a pre-existing mind and it, and it requires eternal self-existent matter to be credible. Uh, but that then suggests 
some kind of a mind is at work, and this is the question I addressed in this new book, what, what type of a mind? Uh, a deistic creator could explain the origin of the universe and the origin of the fine-tuning, but de- deism posits a God who doesn't act after the beginning of the universe, and yet we have evidence of design arising well after the beginning in the origin of life and in the origin of major new forms of life, uh, what I wrote about in the previous books. Um, but also, uh, some have proposed an imminent intelligence, a, a, an intelligent agent within the cosmos, uh, effectively a space alien, and no less a personage than uh, Francis Crick himself, Richard Dawkins, the great uh, scientific atheist in Britain. Uh, these two, two scientists have proposed this theory. It's called panspermia. But I show in the book it's implausible as well, not only because it just pushes the question of the origin of the information necessary to build the first life out into space, but also because any being within the cosmos that evolved long after the beginning could not explain the origin of the universe at the beginning or the origin of the fine-tuning of the laws of physics and chemistry that makes its very life possible. So um, it's not only a deistic conception of a creator that lacks adequacy as an explanation, but also a purely imminent intelligence, some kind of alien being within the cosmos, which, as odd as it seems, is a hypothesis to which some scientists have uh, recently repaired. Amazing. So the divine watchmaker doesn't quite work when you're looking at some of this evidence. But but specifically, when you're looking at all of this and saying this really does point to the existence of a personal God, more in line with the Judeo-Christian worldview, how would you say that that's the case? Is it just basically from what you've been saying, or are there additional elements to all of this that point really in the direction that, that, you know, Newton would have seen and other scientists back in the day would have seen that really spurred them on to, you know, say that science is knowable. Right. Well, each of the three things I've been talking about do point in that direction, and there are some additional elements as well. But let's just talk about the three things. The, the origin of matter, space, time, and energy at some finite time in the past suggests the need for a transcendent cause, a cause beyond matter, space, time, and energy. Mm. And given that the universe began at a point in time, that, in it, that suggests the, uh, the need for a mind to initiate a change of state from whatever was before the universe to the beginning of the universe. In, in addition, the fine-tuning of the laws in physics and chemistry and the initial conditions of the universe suggests an intelligence. And I equate intelligence, self-conscious awareness, with, with personality. That's, yeah. Persons have, are intelligent. That's what we mean by that. And then, but then the third line of evidence suggests a, a, an intelligent agent who is not only transcendent but also active in the creation because the, the evidence we have of life arising and the information necessary to produce life comes on, well down the timeline well after the beginning. So, not a, again, not a deistic creator. So if you look at the ensemble of evidences we have about biological, physical, and cosmological origins, it turns out that classical theism, with its affirmation of a transcendent, intelligent, and active creator, and also a powerful creator, uh, best fits the evidence. So that's, that's the kind of evidence that, for example, in the, in the New Testament, uh, in chapter 1 of the book of Romans, Paul affirms can move us to an awareness of the attributes of God. He says that from the things that are made, the unseen qualities of the Creator, His eternal power and divine nature, sometimes translated wisdom, um, uh, can can be known. So uh, that and that's I think as far as you can go with arguments from nature. But that's that's pretty far indeed, as, as it does get us uh, to the footsteps of um, of, a, of a transcendent and personal creator. Right. Well, and it would seem the implications of these discoveries would be huge for the future of science if more and more scientists would recognize this. Well, you know, you asked a bit ago about some of the scientists 
and their resistance to, to the implications of these discoveries. I have a friendly debating partner, uh, Michael Ruse, with whom I've done a number of debates over the years, and he's written a book explaining that, that neo-Darwinism as a theory of origins, a materialistic theory of origins, has functioned as a kind of secular religion for many scientists. And I think what's going on is something that you indicated earlier in our conversation, is that, is that for many scientists, um, science and a materialistic philosophy are equated in their minds. And so if you're challenging these origins theories that are strictly materialistic, you get a lot of pushback because people instinctively recognize that what's what's being challenged is their worldview yeah. as well as a specific scientific theory. You're totally right about that. Return of the God Hypothesis by Dr. Stephen Meyer. So good to have you here, Dr. Meyer. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. It's great to talk about all these things. Oh, great to talk to you. Really appreciate you. Thank you again. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible and a matching grant will double your gift. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. I'm so glad when tyrants get what's coming to them. It doesn't happen often enough, obviously, in this world, and not until Jesus returns will we have full justice, full freedom, as God originally intended. But I'm very happy with what the Supreme Court did late last week, really handing tyrant Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, another defeat when it comes to religious freedom. This is via PJ Media. About nine hours after the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals refused to grant an injunction that would allow in-home prayer meetings, the Supreme Court thankfully stepped in and they suspended Newsom's COVID-19 restrictions. And it's kind of interesting because California changed the restriction shortly after the plaintiffs filed the lawsuit. So they would have remained in place until April 15th, which is just right around the corner. But it's kind of interesting because they're trying to say, oh, no, 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 this is just too dangerous, which is laughable. When we think back to what went on at the height of the pandemic, in 2020. It was all about 15 days to slow the spread. 15 days to slow the spread. The whole goal was to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. That was the stated reason. And then it became just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you can take your mask off. In fact, you ought to wear two or three. Now you have Dr. Fauci going around saying it's still not safe for vaccinated people to eat or drink without a mask inside. Enough. Go away. Go away. Don't go away mad. Just go away. We're not listening to you anymore because if it were up to you, Dr. Fauci, we would never have any freedom again. This is the way leftists think, because once they saw that they could get a populace to become compliant with anything they said or did because they fooled them into being over the top fearful of this COVID-19 virus, which, while terrible, has been recoverable for 96 to 99 percent of the people who get it. 
Let's not forget that. We never talk about that because that kind of ruins the whole narrative. But in the midst of the height of the pandemic, we had people like Newsom saying, well, the abortion clinics can stay open and the Black Lives Matter protesters can hit the streets and we're not going to do anything to them. And the liquor stores, they need to stay open because that's an essential business. But churches, you have to shut down. At that point, the jig was up. People saw what was really going on. People saw how they were taking a real virus and exploiting it for political gain. And we were on to them. We were on to them within a couple of weeks. Everybody wanted to be a good American. We didn't want the hospitals to be overloaded with patients who couldn't possibly be treated. And so we said, fine, 15 days to slow the spread. I can do that. We all were very good citizens. But after that, when we saw the racial justice stuff and the looting and the burning, and meanwhile, you saw pro-lifers getting arrested in Washington for trying enough. We understand you hate your enemies and you love your friends and you're going to punish your enemies and you're going to reward your friends. And there's a double standard and nowhere was it more on display than in the state of California. So I'm glad to see this. The Supreme Court ruled that applicants, meaning this pastor and group of worshipers who had sued over this, applicants are likely to succeed on the merits of their free exercise claim. They are irreparably harmed by the loss of free exercise rights for even minimal periods of time. And the state has not shown that public health would be imperiled by employing less restrictive measures. They also said, accordingly, applicants are entitled to an injunction pending appeal. This was actually, by the way, the fifth time the fifth time that the Supreme Court has summarily rejected the Ninth Circuit's analysis of California's COVID restrictions on religious exercise. California's blueprint system contains myriad exceptions and accommodations for comparable activities, thus requiring the application of strict scrutiny. Excellent. By the way, as an aside, good old Roberts did not go along with this decision. Chief Justice John Conservative Roberts, who we first got a look at in terms of his actual ideology during the Obamacare case, where he suddenly said, oh, no, Obamacare is totally constitutional. It's just a tax, even though Obama said it's not a tax, but it's a tax. And people began to ask the question, what's going on with him? Is he being threatened? You know, somebody's wanting to go after his family if he doesn't rule the right way. Is it one of those scenarios? I don't know, because he's kept it up ever since. He needs to go. That guy needs to go. But anyway, that's another story for another day. It was interesting to see, though, some of the things that the court had to say in this 5-4 decision about religious freedom and the state stepping on religious freedom. For example, the court ruled that the Ninth Circuit's failure to grant an injunction pending appeal was erroneous, and they laid out four key points on religious freedom. Here they are. First, government regulations are not neutral and generally applicable and therefore triggers strict scrutiny under the free exercise clause whenever they treat any comparable secular activity more favorably than religious exercise, which is exactly what a lot of these tyrants have done. Second, whether two activities are comparable for purposes of the free exercise clause must be judged against the asserted government interest that justifies the regulation at issue. Comparability is concerned with the risks various activities pose not the reasons why people gather. Now, that is a very important point. In other words, what they're trying to say here is how risky is it for a bunch of Christians to gather for a prayer meeting in somebody's home in a group of, say, 21 people versus 21 people gathering at an abortion clinic or a Walmart? Is it more dangerous in somebody's home than it is in the Walmart? If so, you got to prove it. And that hasn't been done. 
Third, the government has the burden to establish that the challenge law satisfies strict scrutiny. And to do so in this context, the court said it must do more than assert that certain risk factors are always present in worship or always absent from the other secular activities the government may allow. Instead, narrow tailoring requires the government to show that measures less restrictive of the First Amendment activity could not address its interests in reducing the spread of COVID. And then finally, even if the government withdraws or modifies a COVID restriction in the course of litigation, that does not necessarily moot the case. And so long as a case is not moot, litigants otherwise entitled to emergency injunctive relief remain entitled to such relief where the applicants remain under a constant threat that government officials will use their power to reinstate the challenged restrictions, which is kind of interesting going back to what I told you a couple of minutes ago. They had actually lifted the restrictions and said, you can go back to normal April 15th. You're not making a case that it's extremely dangerous for Christians to pray in their own homes. You're just being a bunch of tyrants is what you're being. I once again, and I've been saying this for over a year now, I once again want to salute every single church and every single pastor and every single Christian who has been willing to stand up to these tyrants in court. Because in so many cases, we have seen the Supreme Court side with the Christians, and it's a wonderful thing, especially in these times where we rarely see that sort of thing happen. We don't have a whole lot to rejoice about in this country right now when it comes to a lot of these cases that go before the court in various ways. But we do have have cause to rejoice about this, and we should give thanks and praise to the Lord for it, because this is very important. What I'm hoping, though, more than anything else, again, something I've been saying for quite a long time, the legislatures of these states, and I don't have a whole lot of faith in the legislature in California, which, by the way, is your fault, California voters, not you, of course, but those other California voters. But what needs to happen is these legislatures need to pass laws after all this nonsense is over and put in tight restrictions on what is allowed to be done to people during the course of a pandemic in terms of restricting their freedoms. I'm so sick and tired of this emergency injunction stuff where the governors just could go on for months and months and months. No, you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't go here. You have to wear a mask. You can't do this. You can't do that. Meanwhile, there's no law saying any of it. And what that does is take away an essential part of what it means to be an American, which is elected representatives who are from your particular area and may know you personally and are at least responsible to you personally on a more personal level than a statewide elected official like the governor. They are the ones who are to be there representing you in your legislature, and they are therefore the ones who ought to be making laws determining how much of your freedom the state can steal from you under the guise of public health. And that's another subject is the whole issue of public health. I liked what a recent guest had to say on that. When we started asserting public health and accepting in the name of public health, we can let go of this freedom and that freedom and the other freedom. That's where it really started to go off the rails. And so it is the job of these legislatures to make laws when this is all done or maybe even right now to take away the dictator angle on any future pandemic. And I hope that we never have to see one again, don't you? When we come back, we're going to give you an update on Grace Life Church in Canada. Boy, they are incredible. We're going to tell you what's going on when we come back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or especially hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa, on average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people, and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the Word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Christian praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and a matching grant will double your gift and help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. We have been talking for a long time about Pastor James Coates and his family and his church family at Grace Life Church up in Canada, and things just keep escalating. I saw a Twitter video over the weekend where there was a, you might might know that there was a fence erected around this church. This is the church where the pastor was in jail for 35 days because he was preaching and he was having people come to his church. And oh no, we can't have that. COVID-19 will come and get you. So 35 days in jail for the pastor, he finally gets out and the government puts up a fence around his church. Because that's the high priority, I guess, in Alberta. It's important to fence off churches. You don't look anything like communist China. You don't look anything like like the Middle East. You don't look like a bunch of Iranian mullahs trying to shut down Christian worship. No, this is civilized Canada. And then they dispatch something like 200 police officers, according to Rebel News, to come out once some of the protesters had torn down a portion of the fence. Frankly, I think that was fine. I'm not for property damage. I'm not for, you know, doing something illegal. But what right does the state have to put a fence around a church? Are you kidding me? Well, they had ordered the church closed. I don't know. All kind of, The lawyers can sort all of this out. It's, it's crazy. It's really crazy. But something similar, by the way, as an aside, was done in Burbank, California, since we were talking about California. 
Over the weekend, the city of Burbank put up a chain link fence around a local restaurant that has repeatedly defied county health orders during the pandemic. It's around the Tinhorn Flat Saloon and Grill. They want to prevent the owners from reopening under unsafe conditions. What's kind of interesting is the owner was quoted by the L.A. Times as saying, show me one shred of evidence how I am endangering the public. This has never been about safety or the public. It's never been about that. This whole thing is about fear and control. Right on. It's exactly what it's about. And you know what? If people had fought back against this in droves, we might not be here today. If we started acting like we own our own country, which we do, we the people, theoretically at least, are the ones who run this country. If we started acting like we're actually in charge, we might have had a better outcome. But let's lay that aside. Very interesting what's going on at Grace Life Church. The Range Road, according to the Edmonton paper, in front of Grace Life Church was closed to traffic on Sunday and became the scene of this protest that lasted much of the day. And all these officers showed up. Lots of these people gathered and sang hymns and listened to Bible readings which was held outside fencing and closing church property. And just after noon was when some attendees tore down sections of the fence as they were rushed and and stopped in all of this. It's crazy, but you have to look at this and say, what are you doing? What are you doing to Christians? Do you really think that these Christians getting together in this church are responsible for a pandemic? Do you really think that they don't have a separate jurisdiction from the state? Because they do. Why is that? Why is Canada allowed to tell a church you can or can't meet? They don't even look at their own laws half the time. And we saw that with that recent incident where a Polish pastor had kicked the Nazis out. They weren't actual Nazis, but he knows a good Nazi when he sees one, given his experience in the Iron Curtain. You know what a Nazi type figure does? Police storm the church and tell you you can't meet. This is exactly what's going on in China. So what's the real difference? Now, what was interesting was... Over at Grace Community Church in California, John MacArthur's church, which has also stood strong against the tyrants there, the government that is trying to shut them down and not meet according to the local guidelines, they received a letter from Pastor James Coates because, of course, there's overlap. James Coates actually was educated at Master Seminary, I believe it is, which is connected to Grace Community Church. John MacArthur had this to say on Sunday. Listen. Grace Life Church up in Alberta, Canada, uh, is meeting somewhere. Uh, We don't know where. Uh, James Coates said at this point it's uh, not for the public to know. Amazing to have an underground church in Canada. Um, This uh, because the government of Alberta uh, triple-fenced the church in and locked it so people couldn't go there. I think uh, the latest statistics I've seen are that um, 2,000 people have died through the months of COVID, 80% of them uh, in senior homes. Uh, the, the remaining ones had some kind of comorbidity out of the millions of people who live in Alberta. So there's no legitimate reason to do what they did to this church, especially at this point in the COVID life but they did. And um, this is a first for the Western world to have the government lock out believers from a church. And that after imprisoning James Coates, who's a graduate of the Master's Seminary, uh, in maximum security prison, they led him away in chains. And he was there for about 35 days. Many of you have been praying for Grace Life Church and the 
the scene is changing. There is a massive outcry against the government for doing this. And um, I'm praying along with you that uh, this will draw attention to that church, to him and to the gospel. And it's already beginning to do that. Well, I'm praying as well, and I know a lot of you have been praying for James Coates. See, one of the reasons that it's important for this pastor to stand strong is because it does bring really needed attention to this issue of freedom and liberty, and especially religious freedom, not just in Canada, but also drives the point home to a lot of people here in the States. It makes me a bit crazy when I'm reading some of the things that I'm reading on Twitter from supposed Christians who are saying things like, what what, what do they expect? They broke the law. Yeah, I'm going to go back to Corey Ten Boom once more because she's never far from my mind in these sorts of instances. The Ten Boom family also broke the law, oh, Twitter sages. Do you know what they did? They broke the law in order to hide Jews from being carted off to concentration camps when literal Nazis were coming to the door and hauling Jews away in packed trains so they could be exterminated by the millions. And those Christians rightly said this is an unjust law and we're breaking it. See, this is the point. We are not to engage in nonstop civil disobedience based on what we want in the moment. That is not appropriate and that is not biblical. We are to understand the role of government. God has given to us a civil sphere to wield the sword to be able to punish evildoers and to be able to protect people. Think of the anarchy that would be afoot if we had no police. Are you listening to me, leftists? Defund the police. Yeah, that's working great in Minneapolis. Just saying, we need the state. But what can happen in this sinful world is the state can become empowered with evil people themselves who then use the power of the state to oppress and to even exterminate people they should be protecting. And that's what happened in Germany during the Nazi era. We don't want that again. There are countless examples of that just within the last century of tyrannical governments, tyrannical governments today, whether it be the mullahs in Iran or we have the Chinese communist government going after churches and telling them you have to take down the Ten Commandments and we're going to bulldoze your church. You don't have any freedom. You can't meet. We're going to imprison your pastor, whether it's North Korea. We could go on and on and on of all the examples of corrupt governments across the globe who are oppressing and even killing Christians and shutting down churches. We don't want that to happen in the West. Why? Because we are still the area of the world where most of the world looks to us as, well, at least they're free there. And maybe if God grants me the ability, I can get myself to the United States. And when I'm in the United States, I can be free. Praise the Lord, I can be free. I can go to church on Sunday. I can worship as God calls me to worship. I don't have to be worried about police coming to my house in the middle of the night, knocking on the door and hauling me off. And you know what? Those Christians around the globe are looking at what is happening in Canada and no doubt looking at some of what's been happening in the United States. And they are shocked. And they're shocked worse than a lot of these Twitter sages who claim to be Christians are shocked, who are still saying naive and ridiculous things like, but it's the government. I mean, you have to submit to the government. We, the people run this country. 
We have to submit to the Constitution, which gives us freedom of religion. The state and the church are separated. Remember that, leftists? You love citing that if you have some little kid handing out tracts at Christmas time with a candy cane. You love screaming about the separation of church and state. But the minute that the church says, fine, then we are a separate sphere and we have jurisdiction over what goes on in God's house. Here on Sunday, when we gather together to worship him in spirit and in truth and lift up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to needy sinners, many of whom are depressed or even suicidal because they're so locked down and tyrannized by government over the past year. We have a sphere too. It's important for James Coates to be doing what he's doing. And I agree that in the long run, I think this is going to be a glorious victory for the gospel. To see Christians standing up for freedom. It started that way. It started that way in this country. It was Christians seeking freedom that began the great nation that is the United States of America. And freedom must remain or we will no longer be the United States of America. So keep on praying for him and every faithful pastor and church in this land and north of us who will not compromise on this issue. God bless them all. Thanks for being with us. We invite you to help us send Bibles to Africa through Bible League International. $5 sends one Bible. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Thank you so much.